I'm Tim. I'm Cole. And I'm Jim. And this is Topic Lords, the only internet radio show where you can hear topics discussed. Tim, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have something to plug? I can introduce myself and in doing so, I will plug something. Uh, yeah, so I am an uh, old friend of uh, Jim's uh, from when we were in middle school. We both ended up making video games, um, partly because we knew each other, I think. I made a game called Jamestown back in 2011 and then a game called Jamestown Plus in 2015, which I just released on Switch and uh, Steam. Uh, about a week ago. So, I'm very tired. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. On giving birth to the same game twice. It sort of feels like forever, actually. Just like it's like a Groundhog Day of giving birth to a game. Yeah. 2011 was a really long time ago. Ridiculous. Yeah. And uh, no, just, I just keep working on it, keep releasing it, and uh, it keeps being my best move. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, there you go. But uh, yeah, that's, I'm actually not going to be working on it anymore. That's, this is really the farewell, hmm. the true farewell. Well, congratulations. I uh, look forward to seeing what, what you're working on next. Mm-hmm. Cole, uh, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have something to plug? Yeah. Um, so, I'm Cole Ross. I do podcasts over at duckfeed.tv. Pretty much all I do is podcasts. Actually, Tim, we did an episode about uh, about Jamestown. We did like oh, wow. A, a shoot 'em ups episode. Um, I'm a big fan of Jamestown. Oh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> if I remember right, it was an episode about shoot 'em ups in general, and Jamestown was the only one they liked. Yeah, we we did Ikaruga, um, and me and my co-host Gary, we both didn't really care for that very much. But Jamestown was exactly what we needed in terms of like getting us up to speed on the genre. Yeah, that's literally why we made it. It was because we felt like we had not been served by the best games in the genre, but we managed to suffer through, and we discovered how great they are. And how no one can access them. We were like, well, what's the problem? And then we broke it down. Well, in my opinion, you, you succeeded. Jamestown is a really good game. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. But yeah, we just, uh, we do uh, too many podcasts over there. Um, is uh, You might know us from Watch Out for Fireballs or uh, Bonfire Side Chat. Things of that nature. Yeah, some very good stuff. Are you guys ready for, um, for some topics? I love topics. That's why we're here. Yeah. All right. So, the first topic of, the, of this episode, uh, Cole, you have here, cat trees for humans. Yeah. Why don't humans have cat trees? Specifically, adult humans have cat trees designed for them. I understand that this is a ridiculous question. It was prompted because I just got my cat a uh, two, two cat trees, actually, for Christmas, because that's where I'm at in life. And I was looking at it and thinking about the process of going through as I was picking it out and like... Man, there there exists no special furniture just for like activities and enrichment for people. And what I realized is, no, what I actually want is an adult size playground. I was going to say yeah. it does exist, but it is for children because, uh, yeah, their needs are, are greater. Uh, you know, we, we need some place to play. They need to learn how to actually walk. Yeah. So, so we prioritize that. But, you know, what would we learn to do if we had uh, access to those kinds of facilities as adults? I mean, arguably physical therapy. Uh, yes, arguably phys- physical therapy, but keep those, uh, keep, you know, keep those blades sharp. I don't know. I, I don't know that I could do monkey bars still. I could do, I could do it 20 yeah. years ago, you know, but I can't do them now. It sort of seems like you're advocating for like an American Ninja Warrior interior set, playset for adults. Yeah. Yeah, uh, interior, that would be amazing. Interior or exterior, but just kind of scaled up as a place where people can go. Yeah, or or a discovery zone for humans. So, for a while, I went to a bouldering gym, which seems like the closest that we have to this, like, because it is very much about the physicality of motion through space. And, like, there's a, I think, a pretty straight shot, like, a pretty, pretty clean, like, extrapolation line but from like uh bouldering gyms to Ninja Warrior to Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like I know people who get a lot of the you know, who probably get this worked out like when they do uh like any of those crazy marathons like Tough Mudder or whatever. 
like anything that has like an obstacle course component to it. This also is, right. is, is pulled from a fascination with obstacle courses, specifically from like childhood media, you know, the, the aggro crag from, uh, from, uh, global guts on Nickelodeon and things like right. that. You know, the, the, the first, the first half of, of full metal jacket, I watched the, you know, you watch that and I completely missed the point because I just thought, how cool would it be to climb up that wall, man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or the or the game shows that put the contestants in a video game, but only for the viewers at home. Yes. Because for the contestants, they're just looking at a big green wall. Right, right. Nick Arcade and things like that. Yeah, I, I just uh, looking for more uh, physical enrichment for adult humans, I think. If you kind of zoom out, people do do this. Like, it's uh, usually wealthy people who can afford to have private gyms in their house, uh. dance studios. They like to dance or they, they're very serious dancers. Professional dancers will have a dance studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, skaters almost every professional skater has got a uh, little mini skate park in their backyard or a uh, half pipe or something that they are constantly using because it makes sense financially, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think it comes down to priorities, right? Yeah. That, uh, I think people well, would be rad. How rad would it be to have like a ice rink in your house? It'd be, be pretty awesome. great. Yeah, yeah. The other, the other side of it is that adults are so much more likely to seriously hurt themselves than <laughs> children on this sort of thing. That's true. But is that because we're not like staying fit using one of them? Arguably. One would be the moment, right? Because imagine you're going into your adult playground yeah. and you're doing like American Ninja Warrior every day. At mm-hmm. what point are you just like, oh man, I'm so enfeebled and weak. I can't do this anymore. I'm going to guess if you're doing it every day, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna get a lot more miles in the tires there. If we if we did this, if we aimed it at you know 30 to 40 year olds, like we immediately would have a problem with addressing the uh, the the uh, human chat the human cat tree um, obstacle course uh, donut hole because we would have to get people up to speed. So it would need to be holistic, like from the ground up. Yeah, we would need to restart civilization around this idea. Yes. Yeah, you look at someone like Tony Tony Hawkins, I think, in his 50s now, and yes. he's still skating, but like, I don't think you could give a skateboard to a 50-year-old and say, go go for it, buddy. I think yeah. the, the reason he can get yeah. away with it is that he's good enough to not fall all the goddamn time. Yeah, it's like he's always been a skater and never stopped. He's also <laughs> always been a professional athlete, and there's like a reality there too. Yeah. Like, he's not just a skater. Right, <laughs> yeah. The most physically fit skater arguably uh, of all time so yeah he's definitely in good shape but like that's that none of that's causal yeah exactly i think we've uh, figured it out guys we just need to restart civilization just prioritize it around our business plan <laughs> it's all a get rich quick scheme that we're living in anyway are you guys ready for uh, the next topic I sure am. tim uh non-analytical storytelling slash writing and you have here examples, flash writing, story time, songwriting. Yeah, so this comes up a lot for me lately. Uh, you know, I'm a pretty analytical person. I'm a programmer, uh, but I have a real passion for stories. I think most people who make video games do, world building and, and narrative. You know, in having kids, I started having to make stories up for my kids that were in real time and were very interactive, kind of like being a, a DM uh, yeah. in, in a role-playing game, except that they don't have a turn. Like, you're just going yeah. for, I don't know, in my kids, my son's case, it was, it was like, you know, 35, 40 minutes. And he doesn't, he doesn't have input on this? Well, he has a little bit, but he's not like telling the story. He doesn't want to. He's excited about <laughs> me. Just like, just like when you make your own video game and then you go to explore your world and there's no secrets because you built the dang thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why everyone is so like in love with the idea of emergent gameplay is you might be able to make something you love that you don't know everything about. Because yeah. it could surprise you. That's the fantasy. Um, anyway, so I noticed that like after having done this, he's five now. After having done this for years on a nightly basis, my brain is kind of rewired in a way that I didn't realize was possible. I think that a lot of people uh, have um, what you call kind of intuitive creativity in them. And I think I have acquired some aspect of that uh, in this process. You feel like you're just better at coming up with stories on the fly? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good at it, or at least with my son. And, and, you know, you come up with, like, new chapters of the same character. And you're adding yeah. characters in and weaving back and touching back to old stories and places. And, yeah, it's uh, 
it's neat. Do you find that like your son's questions about the story as he's listening uh, is helping to like shape those stories? Are you like gauging his reaction and knowing like even though he is not specifically helping to tell the story, like when he, he perks up when I mention a robot, so I'm going to put robots in this. Uh, well, definitely he has favorite characters, but the thing that's really fascinating to me, I, I don't think it's just that I have practice doing this because you know bedtime story time isn't just impromptu story prompt moment, right? It's also late and you lie with your son or you sit in a chair in the dark Mm -hmm. and you're telling a story for 35 minutes out of your own head and you get in a kind of a a mental state. And I often fall asleep uh, in the process of have had a really long day or it's 1030 and like we're having a really late bedtime. And what's really cool though is he'll fall asleep before me. But the next day or even a week later, he'll be like asking me about that story. Hmm. That I told him. I don't remember it because I fell asleep telling it. It's one of, I don't know, the la- I, I told 30 in the last month, but he remembers all the details and it was really important to him and he like wants follow-up stories. And so, in that way, I kind of, it feeds back in. But uh, anyway, it's just, I've been finding it fascinating. I wrote a song the other day. I went to this Arlo Guthrie concert like, God, like oh, over a decade ago because I'm old and I go see Arlo Guthrie concerts. But it was really cool because he is, um, are you guys familiar with Arlo Guthrie? Yeah. Yeah, he wrote Alice's yeah. Restaurant, most famously. And, and that's a very famous song uh, because it's about 18 minutes long and it's more of a story with song elements woven into it. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, going to his concert, he did about five songs because they're all that way. Every, that just happens to be the one he recorded that way. Canonically, every song is a story with a song that's kind of attached to it. Um, and what he said at the concert was that he, he feels like songwriting is more like fishing you're not building something. You're just waiting for it to swim by and then catch it. Yeah. And you have to be ready to catch it. And I always thought, well, that sounds wise. That must be cool for someone else. I guess mm-hmm. what I've been discovering is that that's, that's awakened in me yeah. in just having just literally practiced. That echoes specifically like creative advice or creative description by several other, you know, creative storytellers, specifically like, um, oh gosh, David Lynch has like a whole book called like Catching the Big Fish or something like that. Where he talks about it's specifically about like transcendental meditation, but also that is it you know, relates to his uh, you know the way that he puts his stories together. And then like Stephen King in his book on writing, he talks about like yeah, this isn't so much creation; it's just like trying to find the uh, find the sculpture and the marble, or it's like archaeology. Like you're just trying to dig this up and keep it intact while you're doing so. Yeah, I, I definitely felt that way. Uh, Carl Sagan talked about that too about uh, getting really high on. Um uh, certain <laughs> chemicals. No, but but in a very uh, true, truthful way, he said that really yeah. he believes that it's not just a confused fever dream, that yeah. you are actually having insights and realizations about um, deep truths about the universe and that the yeah. challenge is translating them back into uh, a way that you can share them with other people. And right. on some level, I feel like storytelling is that way. Like you, you have a story idea, can you now make it work for someone else? Can you bring them into that state? I mean, video games are that way too. Can you create an interactive experience that evokes these emotions and these experiences in somebody else where somebody is arbitrarily somebody like with no qualification? Have you been finding yourself trying to like, now that you've gotten good at this, have you found yourself trying to fit in like allegory and morals into these these storylines? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm actually writing a book uh, right now uh, for my son based on one of the stories that <laughs> wow. uh, comes back. Yeah, hmm. and, and I've written some good stuff. Like, it's got, you know, there's a whole chapter on clocks and time and how, you know, clocks rule people's lives and stuff. So, yeah, I feel like as I get these sort of insights in the middle of my stories, if I sit down and write them down, after having told them, it's very easy. You're just writing down something that you already said. Mm-hmm. And on some level, it feels a little bit like you are reading something someone else wrote. It's very much like catching a fish. You pull it out and you're like, well, what's this? Mm -hmm. Um, And it always struck me as like, I've heard that advice so many times about like, uh, oh, was it it, J.R.R. Martin uh, or J.R.R. Martin? He had a bunch of ideas, but he had to like sort of find out what was going to happen. He didn't really know. He was like having to find out what the characters were going to do. And that always struck me as such like a, that, that, that made no sense. It seemed totally irrational to me and just full of it. And now I realize it's definitely real. <laughs> you, you really, I don't know how that works, yeah. but you really do just kind of the easiest way that the path of least resistance is just to let the story write itself and then watch and then profit and take credit for it, which is really what it feels it like. It takes five years of daily practice. Yeah, 
service. Like, you're going to get it anyway. <laughs> you should get it anyway. You have kids. So, so basically, if you want to be a great writer or an effortless writer, then just have children. That's the key. That's why we have children. I think that I, I come at this uh, from kind of the opposite direction as you. You know, the easiest trick in the world when you're trying to, you know, impress somebody with, you know, a story. And I found this when I was doing a marketing job that I hated was really just like very quickly and on the fly making unexpected connections. Mm-hmm. And that and that suffices for a good deal of, right. you know, of, of, of communication. I don't have anything funny to say about that. No, it's fine. It's, <laughs> it's okay. Can, are you guys ready for another topic? Yeah, sure. Well, I wanted to talk about, uh, I have here, the ephemerality of AI Dungeon, uh, which I wrote that when um, AI Dungeon went down. So, AI Dungeon, let, let's, let's, let's start here. AI Dungeon is a AI-driven, like neural network-driven text adventure, meaning somebody took millions of web pages uh, of storytelling and put them into this learning computer and then used it to produce like you can you can then talk to the computer and you give it text adventure like input and it will give you story like output and the ephemerality comes in because um a few days after this thing launched it got shut down temporarily because uh it had accrued five digits of hosting costs Holy God. On Google Cloud, <laughs> which turned out to be like uh, a, a technical error on the part of not on Google, it's Google's part, unfortunately, but on the part of like the people setting up how it worked. But now they have, um, I believe that's taken care of. And also they have a five digit $10,000 a month Patreon, which is very nice yeah. to, to see like uh, that sort of creativity being rewarded. And then the ephemerality uh, could be, let's say, uh, maybe it's how when you try to play this game, it usually crashes after four or five turns. Or it could be how uh, the phone app, which works a lot better, you can't find it in the Play Store because if you search for AI Dungeon, the search engine removes the word AI from your search because it's too short. And just you just get a bunch of results with the word Dungeon in them. And that's not going to pull back too many video games. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but th- this is a a game that it's it's very much like playing a partially lucid dream where you have a little bit of control but you're really just going along for the ride and a lot of the time you're going to be frustrated by like why isn't it actually listening to me and then like also it'll do things like it'll end its response to you by telling you something that you did without telling you what the outcome was (laughs) so then you have to say well okay what do i do now i'll just retype what you just said but like 10% of the time, it's just magic. It's just this surreal dream ride that you get to go on where you run into a band of orcs on your travels and then you ask to join the band and then you go on tour as the band of orcs drummer <laughs> and, and then you <laughs> marry one of the groupies. And <laughs> I'm in. I'm all in. No, it sounded really cool to me. It sounded though to me like someone has finally created an AI that can identify some aspect of what we call creativity that wasn't really in some way coded before. Because when I see what people are excited about, it's often connections between things. Um, And I think that the deep AI uh, algorithms are kind of the first technology we've had that can do the amount of complexity that's necessary to draw those connections through the multi-layered um, neural nets. It is using one of those, right? Yes. Yeah, it's using TensorFlow. And yeah, it's it's definitely like it's keeping track of story elements like between things you say, like it will it will get the context sometimes of what you're talking about. Like if you, you say you want to do something, it will be it'll say like you do that, but it'll be more specific taking in the context of the story that that it had, it had just told you. Yeah. So like in that case, it decided it decided that band wasn't just a group of a group of orcs who were traveling together. The context of band is specifically a musical band and it keeps that it keeps that in memory, that version of the homonym, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 I, and it reminds me of messing with like Markov chain text generators, which which is a very simple algorithm for generating text from a Statistics. that is similar to an existing corpus, but it it looks for a pattern of exactly size three. Like it knows about the past two words and it generates another word, and that's close enough to like generate text that almost seems realistic, like a human would write it. But mm-hmm. this is uh Neural networks, deep learning algorithms, the text generation algorithms I've seen are a lot more impressive in that they are 
finding patterns of every size. Right. Deep AI is is kind of a, an astonishing technology for us right now. And speaking to the ephemerality of it all, I think um, it's not going to feel that way for people born this year as they grow up. Oh, no, certainly. And, and, and this struck me. I've been looking around at a lot of... So, I was talking actually with my dad yesterday about it, about how, you know, I was trying to talk to him about, <laughs> interestingly, the uh, the idea of giving uh, a certain amount of money to everyone every year, the um, minimum income idea. Mm, and right. one of the motivators for that, whether that's a good policy or not, that one of the big motivators is automation on this scale. The ability, like art, art breeder, to uh, automate drawing art and characters and the economic realities that if you're making, for example, a anime RPG, right now you can go on Artbreeder and just create anime faces for your characters and uh, mm-hmm. you're good. You don't have to pay anyone for that. Uh, right. And that the economic reality there is pretty significant. And then from a music perspective, it's it's. I hope this is obvious to everybody, that's the future of music. Songs will be yeah. written in their entirety by AI because it is so much cheaper and we will be very content with what they make, if not delighted at those creative moments that humans are not inclined to make. And even AI singing could be created because, honestly, it's a fairly finite amount of complexity that most yeah. of art will be ultimately automated because it's cost-effective and we're hungry for more. The reality is you could have your favorite band and then you could just have another album by them. And it may lose something in the experience, but once that's possible, people will listen to lots of different lots of different stuff that become explorers. Like we kind of already are, you know, when you go on Spotify and you're just crawling through finding interesting related stuff, uh, except you'll really have more of a sense like you're playing a, a space exploration game, really discovering something for the first time. I feel like that's that's the the deep game uh, for us, and I think it's in our lifetimes that a lot of things that we consider to be creative work will just become commodified by AI. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that if you look outside of creative work, like it's just as bad. I'd argue it's worse. <laughs> much, much worse. I think people yeah. have seen creative work as being the last bastion, <laughs> the one they can't take from us. Yeah, no, we thought we were safe. <laughs> like it's it's really hard to decide like it, you know it, you know as somebody who in, you know enjoys you know technology and likes following this kind of stuff it's hard to it's hard to decide like what my predominant feeling should be like wonder at, at the achievement or just complete dismay that we somehow either accidentally or in, or intentionally like set out to make ourselves irrelevant well yeah and so the the argument for basic income, like the best moral argument I could think of is that it would allow us to look forward to the day when the machines take over our jobs. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. It, it certainly yeah. – well, I told my dad it's inevitable. I, did, I told him it's not a question of whether we will do it. It's when. There will come a time. I don't know how far out, but there will come a time, probably in my lifetime – where it yeah. will become necessary, um, maybe not for our country, but for a lot of countries, you're just going to have to do it because yeah, there's no, there's not enough jobs. The 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 supply demand is going to tilt in a way that's unsustainable without a change, and the change will be obvious because we'll we'll be living it. No, I, I just hope that that event, I hope it comes without violence. Because uh, in, in the past, it's you know technology has always come with this promise of like, uh, yeah, it's gonna it's it's gonna make it so we have time for leisure and things like that, and then no, turns out. We've always kept the baseline. We've always kept the baseline of, you know, just wage and things like that. And uh, all of the uh, advantages that that confers just turned into more profit. Yeah, well, definitely. Yeah. There's dark times ahead. There's no doubt about that, right? No. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that that's uh, the truth is, I think what, what Jim said before really resonated with me that uh, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we are kind of in the real world. Just sort yeah. of uh, skating through a, a lucid fever dream, and we make nope. sense of all the chaos. But uh, it really is just chaos. Yeah, I, I, I'm really curious because I haven't I haven't played AI Dungeon at all. You know, like from a game perspective, how satisfying is it to navigate this? Right, because like text adventures, you know, the thing that makes most people bounce off of those or interactive fiction generally is like the game just responds n- n- no to too many things you try and put into it and yeah, a, well no, this is this is much more of an improv scenario will you will, yeah. like, will you do just about anything but also like it's it's a terrible game right okay. as a game yeah but it it, re- it it is a good like a good um creativity maybe maybe not a tool and in fact like this is something that i've been 
wondering as I play this, when I find something that's especially good, like I want to maybe incorporate a scenario into a work that I'm working on or yeah. like a line of dialogue that I think is especially funny. But because this stuff, all co- it's all effectively sampled from <laughs> work around the world, fanfic right. probably, uh-huh. that's just, ava- just available on, on the internet. I don't know what, what granularity it's sampled. Like, <laughs> is this whole sentence from from a Sonic fanfic? Right. Uh, or is it constructed of like just two word snippets from – and like there's really no way to tell. Like, yeah. it would be cool if somehow – and I don't know. I don't – I think this data is just gone by the time it goes through the pipeline. Right. But it would be cool if like it got annotated with like this paragraph – comes from Babylon 5 fiction. <laughs> that would be very cool. <laughs> yeah, if you could just mouse over and get a tooltip, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Shall we move on? Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's talk about, uh, this is a write-in. Brett asks, the assertion that programming and in particular programmers are getting worse. So, I'm going to divide this into two, two subtopics so that Cole can talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we can talk about uh, programming as a discipline and we can talk about programmers getting worse as like, are they just getting to be more assholes? <laughs> so, yeah, I have some thoughts on this, Brad. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested. Uh, so, I have first of all not heard that. Um, and that is almost certainly due to the circles that I move in. And this is the kind of assertion that I imagine gets traction amongst people within particular, particular careers, types of code bases, social groups. Um, uh, so, that's the first thing I say. It has to be qualified by what, what do you mean by programming? For example, the first thought that came to mind is like, when you say programmer, are you talking about that as an identity or a vocation? Because the line get, because becoming a lot more blurred in the present day. Uh, for example, if you were to just tell people, for example, in the world of writing, hey, everybody is going to do NaNoWriMo this year and it's mandatory. You'd have a ton of writers and writing would become worse probably on average because you'd have a lot of inexperienced writers writing novels. But I don't think that that is saying much about writing. Like the, the conclusions you can draw from more people taking on the identity are not the same as if you have a stable population who uh, are, are so, like population count that's cycling in with new blood on a kind of, uh, you know, based on uh, human growth rate uh, basis. And I think that right. we are really seeing a lot of people getting into programming now that weren't in it before. So, from that perspective, assuming that more people are getting into programming than ever before at younger ages, I'm sure that in aggregate, if you were to assign programming tasks to a random selection of people in the world, you'd see on average less experienced and more incorrect or flawed uh, pieces of code. But that feels, again, like a population question. Yeah. So, the observation, like when I see people talking in, in, in general about programming getting worse and programmers getting worse... They're usually talking about Silicon Valley. They're usually talking about the kind of programmers that they hire at startups. I observe this sort of thing with like kind of awe and frustration, but it really seems to me that the the way that startups build programs is off this like teetering stack of dependencies a thousand feet high <laughs> and as if their company is not going to last a year, which is probably true. So, in that case, that in that sense, it makes sense. But I think that's not programmers. I think programmers as individuals are getting better in the same way that like speed metal guitarists are getting better because, you know, the ecosystem they're growing up in is like the teachers are better, the role models are better. And so, the people learning programming, like they will just learn to do better because they are trying to be as good as their heroes. It's a standard process of the advancement of technology. Yeah, it doesn't feel like... um that's probably not controversial. So, I'd love to move away from this question as answering the direct question posed and maybe share some uh, share some observations that, that get at it <laughs> and not worry about the detail of yes or no uh, or, or is it true and just here, here's some things I found. I did a medical device contract recently to shore up some money uh, because video games don't pay very well, at least not when you run your own studio and you make 2D games. So, I did some work for a medical device company doing uh, eye scanning, actually. It was like uh, ultrasound. So, I had this ultrasound equipment and I was coming to the code base. The people I was working with, really smart, cool people, but they didn't have any formal training in programming. And they came to a problem, which is when they plug the A-scan unit into the machine, it detects it via uh, an event uh, through a little library they embedded. 
And it does that on a side thread. And they're doing this in C-sharp where there's a UI thread, uh, which is sort of dedicated to doing the UI work. That's not the thread they got the event on. And they wanted to change which window was showing up when you plug it and automatically take you to the A-scan page, right? But when you go to the page, it actually constructs it, does a bunch of callbacks, it sets up a bunch of widgets, queries a bunch of stuff in the database, etc. So uh, when I got there, they had decided to put mutex locks around all of their UI calls in the entire code base because of this one moment. And I explained to them that they could just take that event, put it in a little box, go back to the UI thread, and then pull it on the next frame and not need to do any thread safety stuff at all. And what was fascinating to me was their response was, we've already done a bunch of work this way, and it seems to be working okay except for all the crashes. So we'd like to just pay you to do the other. And we, I think we enumerated a 7,300 code point. And I was like, you sure? And they were like, yeah, um, we want it to be consistent. And I think that, you know, if you kind of zoom out there, that is the kind of decision making that happens when you have non-programmers running a programming project. It's not so much the code you write that's the really bad thing, because I think people learn on the job how to do the syntax and so forth. The real mistakes I think you see are lack of knowledge of kind of best practices and ways to optimize workflow and solve problems in efficient ways. And what you get is a mindset. I've really seen this. Um, a mindset of just making the thing and not caring how you make it because someone's above you paying for it and there's someone above them paying them for it. And really, as long as you make the thing happen, it just doesn't matter what it is under the hood. The paperwork uh, to get medical devices through is astonishingly difficult. And these are very smart people who can actually manage the entire process of, of getting through these like you know 700 page documents they have to write of um, regulations so they come from that and then they'd write the software which is really a smaller job when you look at right. it yeah <laughs> so so yeah they come from different places you're doing the easy part so like <laughs> like why why bother working really hard to do the easy part really well yeah it's not the it's right. not the show the show is that they've made all the deals and they with the vendors to buy the thing they're going to get the dang mm -hmm. through regulation after four years. They're going to be the only thing that did that, the only product that did it. And they're going to be in all these different hospitals. And what you need to make sure is that it, it satisfies the requirements in the requirements document that you wrote. Yeah, I think there's some truth to the idea that organizations can be at best good at maybe one or two things. They can, they can only be good at one or two things if they have the culture to be, and if they have the culture to be good at one thing, anything else is just like, we're just going to do whatever it takes to get by. Yeah. And so, like, if you're not working at a software company, like, if you're working at a software company, you got, like, a, a some shot of the software being good. But if you're not, <laughs> then you really don't. Like, yeah. unless there's some sort of, like, engineering subculture that somehow sprung up inside of this company <laughs> with another focus. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I want to get to the other half of this question, which is, are programmers more assholes now than they were? <laughs> Def uh, definitely not. <laughs> With, without a doubt. I, 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 don't, I don't want to make that kind of, um, kind of generalization, specifically thinking about, you know, my, my own community over at the, you know, the, the, the you know, duck feed, duck feed fans and people who help out and things like that. And, you know, I, I know some of my best friends are programmers, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> me, me too. Some of my best friends are assholes and, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and that's really true. Um, yeah. and I feel like to me, it's, it's definitely the case that there are fewer asshole programmers in my uh, circles, the people who I've worked with, who I am working with. I don't, I don't know exactly why that is, but I think in general, there used to be this mystique that surrounded the curmudgeonly programmer who everyone admires and who the gets gray a, beard. Yeah, right. the, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's a cliche uh, stereotype. You see it in a lot of television and movies, but that isn't necessary anymore if you want a good programmer. They just, the, the best programmers I know now are super sociable and yeah. friendly and cooperative. Uh, and, and honestly, it's, it's just being able to, to communicate with other people is one of the most valuable skills in programming. 
is is that is that because you tend to associate more with programmers who are roughly your own age? You're not getting into projects with people who are who are freshed out. Because my my impression from the outside would be that like after a certain amount of time in the industry, you either stay an asshole and flame out because nobody wants to work with you, or you mature and you know have those edges sanded off and to become more productive and less of a drag for people around you. I can't say for sure. I mean, I, I definitely work with a lot of younger people. Um, yeah. Right now, I'm working with Giant Squid, who's making a game called The Pathless. And it's a much younger team than me. Some guys on the team, brilliant, brilliant developers. So there's a guy who does mm-hmm. rigging, uh, and he's, I think, 22. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are just astonishingly talented, friendly people. Just yeah. so thoughtful and m- mature and astonishingly talented. Some of the best people I've ever met. So, you know, from my experience... Yeah. I would say I am finding that the younger people are less assholes. <laughs> I guess I think it might be a big part of it. It's like yeah, they're maybe. such agreeable people. It might also be that people don't mess with me anymore. I mean, there's a reality, <laughs> which is like it's hard to be an asshole to someone who's been a professional game programmer for like 15 years. Yeah. It's just hard. Like, what do you, you got to come out swinging pretty hard uh, just yeah. due to the fact that you are up against a, a bigger unknown than someone mm-hmm. coming out of school where there's a lot of commonality. I think people might yeah. be a little more cagey when I'm around about, you know, kind of laying down big truths or something. Yeah. The, there's also like a leadership aspect to it too. Like attracts like, you know, if somebody is going to be just a real jerk, that's probably going to make them not hireable <laughs> or yeah. not long, you know, just like not, not a long-term fit for the actual team. Like, you, yeah. you know, just the the incentive is set from the top to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think a, a part of it might be what you were talking about earlier, Tim, that programming is much less likes likely to be your identity now. Yeah. I think the coming generation of programmers, like the younger generation, is much more likely to see it as just like, this is just a thing I do and maybe it's a career as opposed to like, this is a this is the person that I am. Like, I'm the person who stays up all night in the born shell guzzling Mountain Dew, you know. <laughs> this might be a good segue into the next topic. Oh, yeah. Let's... So, uh, you told me what this means yeah. at the beginning of the show and I... Put it on the list because of that, but I don't remember what you said. Sonder. Yeah, so I was talking with my my family. My 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 family has a little like group hangout chat. We were talking about um a uh, a Reddit post someone had made. And it was about a, a sad story about a guy who uh, his friend was working, you know, cutting down trees with him, and he ended up uh, his friend ended up hitting like a knot in the tree, and the chainsaw, you know, started to cut him in half and they ended up having to drive to the ambulance and they weren't um, able to get to the ambulance in time. And the reason was because they were driving really quickly on the freeway to get to the ambulance, which was waiting a few miles ahead on the highway for them. And this person and two people in front of them blocked them off on the highway to try to teach them a lesson about driving unsafely. And it was really interesting because I think a lot of people who consider themselves very responsible drivers responsible people, good citizens, get the impulse sometimes. When someone blasts past you with a, on a motorcycle or something, you're like, oh, I'm so mad at that person. Um, they're such a reckless driver. It's easy to, to see yourself making the same mistake and, and really regretting having been so judgmental. And those moments make you know people stop and think for a minute. And there was a, uh, at the same time, uh, I came across a uh, video of this is water this is water precisely yeah so this is water is a is a sort of speech given by david foster wallace about how we project onto the chaos of the world negative sort of lazy negative realities because it's convenient and uh we're accustomed to it and it's a wonderful talk by the way i recommend looking up this is water david foster wallace and watching uh, a video of it or just listening to a recording of it it's really uh illuminating and i think it's deeply wise but uh anyway that that whole thing reminded me as well of uh, a thing i read by kurt vonnegut Uh, it's in uh, breakfast of champions uh i'll read it to you because i actually have it right here it was uh i emailed it out to my family and it said, uh, I thought Beatrice Kiesler had joined hands with the other old-fashioned storytellers to make people believe that life had leading characters, minor, minor characters, significant details, insignificant details, that it had lessons to be learned and tests to be passed, a beginning, a middle, and an end. As I approached my 50th birthday, I'd become more and more enraged and mystified by the idiot decisions made by my countrymen. 
And then I had suddenly come to pity them, for I understood how innocent and natural it was for them to behave so abominably, and with such abominable results. They were doing their best to live like people invented in storybooks. That was the reason Americans shot each other so often. It was a convenient literary device for ending short stories and books. Why were so many Americans treated by their government as though their lives were as disposable as paper facial tissues? Because that was the way that authors customarily treated bit part players in their made-up tales, and so on. Once I understood that was what was making America such a dangerous, unhappy nation of people who had nothing to do with real life, I resolved to shun storytelling. I would write about life. Every person would be exactly as important as any other. All facts would also be given equal weightiness. Nothing would be left out. Let others bring order to chaos. I would bring chaos to order instead. So that, I think, it resonated with these same ideas to me. And I was talking about this with my family, and one of my family members brought up this word, sonder, uh, S-O-N-D-E-R, which won a contest, I think, in 2012, 2011, um, mm-hmm. to come up with a really useful word. And what it, what it means is it's the emotional feeling you get when you realize that everyone around you their lives are just as complex and nuanced as anyone else's. Uh, yeah. And you look at a train station, you realize that the complexity of the hundred odd people st- waiting at the train station is more vast than everything you have or ever will read uh, in stories, movies, all media you ever consume. And that is a profound emotional feeling that uh, I've recently started having a lot. Yeah. To dismiss, like when you pass by a thousand people on the street when you're walking to work, you know, if you live in that sort of place and you just dismiss the, their entire history because you have to. Yeah. yeah. Like it's, it's chaos. To, to be able to get on with your life. It is like a, it's very easy to see that as an act of violence, but like it's one that you just, you, you can't possibly give the full deserved respect to everybody you meet. But you can, but you can. And that's the thing that uh, This Is Water talks about. And that's what I think was my big realization because you're, you're projecting an arbitrary order onto the chaos. You're picking some story. And the reality is if you were to try to guess, let's say someone behind you is driving fast. If you had to guess why that's happening, you're probably wrong. There, it's so many answers, right? What are the odds you actually get it right? And maybe that one is even an easy one. Let's say that there's any number of things happen that are inconveniencing you. Some other person is there. You try to say anything about somebody, you're probably wrong. And since you're probably wrong anyway, uh, if you pick positive narratives, positive stories that are almost certainly untrue, you're not that much worse off than picking a really negative one that's also probably untrue. Uh, so, yeah. what I've started doing is to just project identities onto people on the train station. There will be some person across the street from uh, – across the, the seats from me on the trolley. You know, they look like they're maybe 60 and I'm like, maybe they're a game developer. And like, that's probably not true. But it's interesting mm-hmm. to kind of project that identity. It changes how you see people to, to make them more like yourself or less like yourself or like something that you admire. And it's not hard to do. And I think I feel much happier as a person walking around in awe of the wonderful people around me than feeling like I'm surrounded by supporting characters. I think that's a nice – I wonder like whether that's not like the equivalent of malevolent racism. <laughs> <laughs> once you have this epiphany, right? Once you Once you conceive of a universe that doesn't have you at the center – that's the start of kind of like just constantly adjusting your, your 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 heuristic about how much benefit of the doubt you apply, you know, to a lot of people. You know, the, the the way that I think about this is, oh, everybody has their reasons. Like that person probably didn't fly off the handle at me because of me. They probably flew off because they've been <laughs> they've had just shit piled on them all day, and finally, whoop! Right before I got to them, one one piece too many came, and they had to unload some on to me and everybody has their reasons for that and when you conceive of like the uh you know the the busy street or the train station or what have you you know you think about like in order to proceed forward in order to move in order to exist in the world you have to have empty space to get into 
like when you anonymize, you know, people and when you selectively ignore the detail of their own existence, you know, when you when you when you do kind of just kind of efface them and push them away, that is more selectively to just create empty space for you. That is not necessarily, you know, to my conception of this, that is not necessarily like um, the same thing as also giving them, you know, kind of an adverse inference. Yeah. 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 I think that the um, ignoring people, I think, uh, makes sense. But there's a there's a really interesting truth in there, too. So if you are driving, right, uh, how often are you running late for something, would you say, when you're driving a car, if you drive? For me, for me, pretty low, but it's mostly because I don't usually have places to be. You have a life of leisure. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, right. uh, pretty much the same for me. I would say I'm running late, maybe five or ten percent of the time. That's what I was thinking. Like, I don't know, yeah. one out of what twenty-ish uh, times. So, how many per- percentage of drivers on the street don't you notice? Do you think? I would guess it's about ninety, ninety-five percent. So when you do notice somebody, what are the odds you think that he's running late for something? <laughs> like it's yeah. not that yeah. bad actually. It, <laughs> yeah. it's, it could be yeah. that every person who seemed to be in a big hurry on the street was legitimately in a hurry you would empathize with. Now I don't yeah. know that that's true, but I was thinking about it. Like you're ignoring so many people that mm-hmm. when you notice one, when it becomes a collision, yeah, not a literal one, with, or perhaps a literal one, but no, uh, it, it, it becomes a collision between between your existence and theirs. Yeah. The statistics are such that there's a decent argument, at least, that most of the time what is happening is the intersection of someone in an exceptional circumstance with you who is behaving in a way that's noticeable to you. Thus, you notice them. And thus, yep. most of the people you notice seem to be inconveniencing for you for reasons that are too complex for you to understand yeah. because you yeah. lack the sufficient information. So, that's been yeah. something I've been thinking a lot about. I've been wishing there was some way to to share kind of, I guess, the positives it's brought to my life to just kind of work hard to build positive interactions. Try to see the best possible version of somebody. It's yeah. like that flash storytelling I was talking about, just on the fly, just start telling a story and I, uh, go from there. I saw an article maybe a year ago, and I'll put it in the show notes if I can find it, positing that there's no such thing as laziness. Yeah. That Anytime you see somebody struggling to complete a task, it is because of a disability or confusion or a distraction. Or a lack of resources specifically in that instance. Right. That you might not be aware of and that more generally, anytime you don't understand somebody's actions, it's because you're missing some of their context. Yeah. Yeah. And that's especially important, like, um, in social media, when everybody, you know, when a large number of us have um, a a portion of our existence facing publicly, just uh, when they talk about like, oh, Instagram is or Instagram or Facebook are a source of misery for some people, because they're comparing their lives to other people to, to the best of what these other people have decided to show. The best of the people. The best of the people's best moments. Right, right. And, you know, and just I forget where I heard this, uh, but, you know, just the idea of like, oh, don't compare your backstage to somebody else's front stage. That's good. That's wisdom. (laughs) You know, and like so much of it's just about like, okay, I have control over my internal world or I have more control over my internal world than the external world. Right. So I can choose to shape it and I can choose my reaction to this person riding my ass on the highway or, you know, cutting in line at the grocery store or whatever. Like, why wouldn't I choose to shape my internal world in a way where I'm not walking around annoyed and angry all the time? Not, you know, you don't have full control. There's all kinds of chemical reasons and upbringing reasons and history reasons, but it is an effort. All of it is an effort to try and, you know, shape that internal world in a way. You do have some measure of influence over that. (laughs) I feel like I sound like a preacher, so. No, it, I think it's true. <laughs> it's, it's cool. I think we all sound like that, this particular topic. <laughs> Are you guys ready to, for another topic? I'm ready for one. Can you hit us with one? Our, okay, I will. Uh, Cole, <laughs> uh, you have here a question. What determines if an inanimate object, for example, a car, home, or do- golf club, gets a proper name? I'll, I'll put this to the room. Um, we're going to it's right there in the topic. I have a boat and this boat has a name because that's what we do. Or, you know, our house has a name. I just like this is the thing that I've seen in media. This is the thing that other people have done. I do not do this. The only thing I have named is my cat. Uh, even that. No, sorry, uh, no, the shelter name, my cat. 
So, <laughs> I so you'll permit to, things to have names. Yes. If something mm. comes into my life with a name, I will let so it. So dis- if, <laughs> if the shelter gave your house a name. If the shelter gave my house a name. Well, you said inanimate objects. Yes. So. Oh, yes. Yeah. My cat, my cat is very, is, is very animate. Yeah. But like, so do either of you do this and do either, does anybody in your life you know, do this, like, oh, this pair of socks is named such and such. Like, how much are people anthropomorphizing the the objects that they rely on? So there's, you could see it as anthropomorphizing the object, but also there's the phenomenon of, like, you just need to be able to refer to something efficiently. True. Like, we call our car Stormy, but also, Mm. like, we call the room that I work most in the lab. And, like, Stormy is kind of anthropomorphizing the car, but we're not anthropomorphizing the lab. That's just a room that has a name. No, it's just like uh, the the inside in my house, you know, my, in my family, the inside of the door that everybody most uses, like the area right inside, say, the, you know, the, the, the door leading from the garage into the house. That is always the mudroom. Like, oh, we don't we, we don't live in New England. We've never had like an actual mud room, you know, where people would like take off their <laughs> their snow covered like boots and stuff, you know, to keep the mud from getting inside. It's just always been the mud room, even when it's not a room. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's an aspiration to, uh, you know, uh, live live as the people who have, you model your life on lived. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, you have plastic silverware. That's a very similar. There's a name for those. I forget what that that. um that phenomenon is where you name something based on what it's often named, but it no longer describes what the thing is. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I feel like for me, the um, the anthropomorphization is often that I dislike something. It actually tags back pretty well to the Sonder conversation mm-hmm. that if there's a, a thing that I hit my leg on a lot, that's, you know, uh, this stupid table, for example, mm-hmm. that I know about, that gets a, a name sometimes, you know. Like a knee breaker Charlie and it makes you hate it less because it's got a name and it's a little <laughs> bit funny and you don't hate it so, so much as you did before. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the case uh, a lot of the time, actually. Uh, the car that's always breaking down, you anthropomorphize as being kind of like a, a trusty old friend who's kind of a pain in the ass. Yeah. But, you know, you've been with them through so much that you forgive them for their faults. Like we're channeling our empathy and our best qualities um, and we become happier. It's, we feel happy loving things. Yeah. Uh, you get a, a, we have a bunch of nameless toys for the children. There are uh, stuffed animals that we'll get uh, at certain events. One of the most po- common ones is like Easter. Mm-hmm. Oh, look, like a generic bunny mm-hmm. holding an Easter egg. Those don't get names. No one plays with them. And it's sad, but if you give it a name, it's not a boring toy, toy anymore. Nothing's changed except that you've decided to um, project something onto it that makes you love it and you do that because it makes you happy it's like the only the only time i ever bought a plant in my life is when some uh grocery store got the idea of putting googly eyes on all the cactuses (laughs) i remember remember this (laughs) yeah and uh the only time i've ever named a plant uh i've I've liked having plants in the past i've always just called it called it chuck because of lucasarts games oh yeah yeah chuck the plant yeah no it's uh it's it's the truth though that you also I remember we, I had a cactus the only plant I owned in college and I managed to kill it which was a hell of a thing hmm. um, but I called it cactus and I loved it uh, because I gave it a name and uh, when it died I was legitimately heartbroken I still remember it yeah. and I cared very badly for that cactus <laughs> as evidenced by the fact that it did not live uh, even two years <laughs> in my That's possession despite it was a cactus yeah. living indoors S- sort of related to this topic. Um, I, I've heard of a, a similar practice where you, in conversation, refer to your cat as your roommate. Like, my roommate took all the bows off the presents under the tree and then shit on the floor. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like that. I don't know if I would do it um, with my family. They will often refer to my cat. You know, she's, she's a girl as my daughter. And I buck against that. Like, no, her brain's the size of a walnut. She'll live for 10 <laughs> years. Like, But you don't want to be yeah. the skin dad? i don't want to be skin dad jim i'm totally cool with people doing that with their pets i think a lot of people i don't i don't have pets because i'm allergic to most of them yeah because i had traumatic experiences where all my pets as a kid died but i i i really do feel like when people want to project that kind of love onto an animal Mm -hmm. that kind of kinship that's got to be good for the world 
Yeah. That's got to be a net positive. Yeah. I think that's cool. Oh, yeah. Um, that's kind of the do Android stream of electric sheep concept. <laughs> Have an animal to like project love onto and you'll uh, your society will be more uh malleable yeah <laughs> placid and malleable oh, I, I, <laughs> but stable but stable i still i still spoil her i just don't uh, i just don't consider her to consider her to be a daughter mm-hmm. i'm responsible for her but i don't know it's a, it just it's just a weird it's a weird line that i've drawn if it doesn't draw, bring joy to you don't do it yeah. people who do i, I nothing I nothing negative there I, I think cats are way more lovable than most human children so <laughs> and you speak from authority now that's yeah. right <laughs> i mean especially human children that belong to other people there's an for exception whole, yeah. for the ones who belong to you you know yeah yeah but like if a kid's misbehaving like i, I don't know I, like as i've grown older like you know to take this back to saunder like you know kid starts crying on, a, on an airplane i don't think that ah, geez this is this is inflicted on me i think boy i feel like doing that right now too actually and yeah. <laughs> way more people would be upset at me for doing that than for that kid doing that <laughs> yeah. but it's like you know, it's like oh yeah bawling and breaking down in the store like yeah no i've been there I, I, i've been there recently but the kid can do it and i can't so i'm yeah. not going to begrudge them having the opportunity <laughs> oh you could also just be incredibly jealous and angry why can the vicarious <laughs> why is this kid allowed to scream nah no that's not my that's not my approach to it you just let it all out yeah i mean i mean i feel like uh, the whole thing with with kids also is like kids are the most complicated generality to make yeah. they're just i didn't realize until i had them but like any generalizations you make about children are false for the majority mm-hmm. like it's just kids are infinitely complex it, just as all people are it's again the sonder thing taken into a child perspective it's like uh what works for one kid slash adult is uh one of like an infinite number of possibilities oh, yeah. and and i don't know each one works for five percent of combinations mm-hmm. like they're just there's no there's no useful rules yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. just none yeah, the, the the only thing in, in terms of like naming or anthrop- anthropomorphizing inanimate objects, the closest I have gone to that was when I got a Roomba and I bought googly eyes, but you can't just buy two googly eyes. <laughs> so he became like a fly. Well, yeah, I put as many googly, googly eyes on it as the surface would allow. I had a nightmare about that once. Yeah, no, it's a, it's it's the it's the Roomba from Bloodborne. Definitely, it's like Cos. Yes, Cospa. <laughs> <laughs> the the way to handle this would have been to put two on the outside and then open it up and put all the rest on the inside. Mm, yeah, uh, but that wouldn't have freaked out the squares, Jim. That's mm. well, once they have enough insight. <laughs> so so we got one more topic. We we got one more topic. Do we want to do it or do we want to like? Go deep on inanimate objects. Yeah, let's let's talk about fruity cheesema. Hey Jim, what is that? Okay, no, you're supposed to say what's cheesema. What Jim? What's fruity? <laughs> oh no, what's fruity cheesema? So the, the the script you were supposed to follow would end with me saying, "Not much." What's cheesema with you? <laughs> uh, so I saw this on a sign in a boba shop, and I took a photo of it, and I searched Google for it. There are no hits for Fruity Cheesema. No, I just did a Google search for it and I just got your Twitter. <laughs> right. Okay. That's now there's one. Now there's one hit for Fruity Cheesema. <laughs> my hypo- and I haven't ordered this and I probably will at some point. But my hypothesis is that this is the cheese tea that you've been reading so much about that um, is uh, rocking the boba world where people will put cheese powder or cream cheese foam on top of tea. <sighs> Hey, 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 Jim! I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna cop to a certain amount of um, Midwestern provincialism here. This is, mm-hmm. this is a certain amount of uh, ignorance that I have. What is boba? What is tea? What's fruit? I, I've I've heard boba, but I've never looked up what it is. Can you describe? Have you ever had tapioca pudding? Yes. Imagine if those little balls in the tapioca pudding were like uh, a centimeter across. <sighs> They're like Gigatron ones. So, is this just a way for you to? Is, are, is it like a, is it like a like a death seeking thing? Are you, are you trying to engage to choke with- you to death on this? Yeah, it is absolutely high probability, uh, definitely that you'll at least inhale one. Okay, and try to cough. It's it's great though. <laughs> the side, no, it's really cool. Okay, they're they're like a little bit like slippery, so that they can form a nice seal in the straw, and they're just just the right size to sit in the straw. So like. You could just kill somebody, I think, if you loaded one in and blew as hard as you could. Like, it's like a perfect, like a rail gun to pow. 
right as they were inhaling right right so but that but that, that's a small amount of the time you may you might be trying to kill somebody most of the time you are loading that directly into um one of the larger or, or holes in you um, right, but they'll never guess they'll never guess <laughs> the, the, the the no matter what the evidence is they'll be like that definitely didn't happen i just i just have to say it sounds it sounds extremely displeasing in a just in a in a, in a sensory kind of way it is awesome okay. it is so good uh it's it's a perfect pairing and uh, they come with all kind of flavors. You can get it cold and hot. It's great. Yeah, the okay. traditional one is like tea with milk and sugar in it, like a lot of milk. So, it's it's like kind of just slightly off-white. And then you've got all these these black like – I don't even know if they taste like anything. They're just kind of like tapioca orbs. Yeah. Lo- like kind of sitting at the bottom of the tea. And so, the experience is like drinking this tea through a pretty big straw – and like every every so often, at the beginning of the experience, you usually get like two or three of these things per sip in your mouth and you get to chew on them for a little bit. There's like – it's okay. definitely a sensory experience as much as um, a flavor one. At the end, it's like the Hungry Caterpillar. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, <you're- laughs> it's like the Google bar at the bottom of, uh, of a Google search by the end. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, no, and I'm looking at the I'm looking at the picture, Jim. You took of the fruity cheese, but it does not look displeasing. I, you know, yeah. I think that I'm associating this. So b- uh, before Orbits was a travel site or a chewing gum, Orbits was a, a like a soft drink that yeah. had those tapioca beads in it. And I never had one because it looked vile. And I think that I've carried this assumption forward about any bead based beverage. Yeah, and I think like part of the mistake that orbits made was that <clears throat> that you can make um a beverage that's just going to sit on the shelf mm. and look appealing like this i think you have to make a boba like on the fly yeah and serve it immediately i think it's wonderful now let's let that's that's boba now and cheese <laughs> i'm like that sounds like a dare uh <laughs> that someone should not have taken uh, and I think that someone might be you. Is that right, Jim? Did you get a fruity cheese, Jim? I am not. Uh, no, I haven't. But I probably will, and I will email you each of you to let yeah, you know. Please, please report. Oh, I need. Back. I need a video reply and uh, like a video <laughs> response. I run a response video. Uh, I saw the review of Cats. That it was the best review, which was like, uh, what would they say? They were like that. The that they felt like by the end of the movie, they just. They were just in awe that someone kept the dare going this long. <laughs> yeah, and I kind of feel like Fruity Cheesema might be that. Like no one's no one's gonna flinch, right? We're all just gonna <laughs> act like this is normal. But it does like it, it does it doesn't even just the idea of it if it is like a like a cream cheese foam on top of it, like I don't know, cream cheese and fruit go together. You know, yeah. like a, a, a That is a, not a, the kind of logic you want to be applying to food. <laughs> <laughs> nuts and gum together at last that is like there are there are a lot of bad <laughs> foods you can make that way yeah way too many like oh i like this I, when i was a kid i made uh ketchup cookies which made perfect sense yeah. to me, right it, eggs and ketchup were good i was a kid mm-hmm. you know that was great and and, and ketchup <laughs> actually goes like everything so cookies i mean god cookies are always good yeah so the logic was pretty sound there yeah but it wasn't true but did you offer this in your successful boba shop? If I had a successful boba shop that sold fruity cheesema and got me rich, mm-hmm. I would definitely go back to be like all of my old notes. Like I was wrong. Uh, <laughs> fruity cheesema is my top seller. I run a boba shop, and it's it's incumbent upon me to pull all the old ideas off of the um, right and put them put them on the shelf without testing them at all. Clearly, yeah. what I needed to do all this time was. The opposite of what I thought I should do. We have a lot of assumptions to re-question at this point. Yeah, I'm mean, just definitely going to do all of my bad ideas. The thing 100%. I remember testing the combination of as a kid was peanut butter and Swiss cheese. Whoa. Don't you want peanut butter to work with some sliced, like you, just, you get to roll it up into a little like taquito? Yeah, make yourself a roll up. Yeah, or if you're sophisticated enough to realize what the Space Invaders actually are, you can like then once you roll it up, you chop it up into little sushi rolls. 
Yeah, I think that these exact experiments are why it took decades for like the sweet and savory flavor profile combination to like take off here in America because so many of us got burned by mixing peanut butter and ketchup at some point. <laughs> I got so burned. I had you know, the logic of children is so hilariously wrong. I uh, I when I was a kid, I loved Cheerios, so I have a Cheerios with milk, and like they're kind of off white, you know, like oh, the off white cereal. Yeah. So I had cheese it too. Mm-hmm. And I had orange juice. I was like, oh, those are both orange. Yeah. <laughs> I see how this works. So I got myself a big old bowl of Cheez-It and I poured in a lot of orange juice. Yeah. And I had definitely that, that look on my face. There's some meme that does this. I, I made, made a terrible mistake. <laughs> um, it, was, it was absolutely vile. And, huh? and the worst part of it, which I can share with you because like who's had this experience? You, you could have it at a very low cost actually. I am trying this tonight. I'll save you. Okay, you should do it. It, it was awful. But the interesting thing is that it's like Cheez-It is not like just like a piece of bread. No. It's so oily that it stayed crispy. Huh. <laughs> That's like sealed. Yeah. Well, sort of, right? But you get like these little pockets where it would get where the milk would get in or the, the orange juice would get under a wafer. And like then it would be compromised. It would become like mush. But then there'd be these crunchy little uh, flakes in it. Um, kind of to jab your gums. It was bad. It was traumatically bad. I was like five. <laughs> I still remember it. <laughs> we're we're going to need to try this with that vile looking cheese at pizza or cheese at calzone that Pizza Hut does. That is, I hadn't even heard of that. Yeah, no. Um, There's all these things that we try to avoid hearing about in life because we become depressed if we knew about them all. Uh, in order to stay buoyant, we have to just filter. I bet that cheese at calzone really loves its mother. <laughs> its name is Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> no, way, to, way to loop it all back together, guys. It's in a hurry to get its kid to school on time. <laughs> I know. I, I So, I was driving to the library and there was a, a woman who made a, a right turn on a red light from like the wrong lane, from like the third lane over. Oh, man. And when I got to the library, she pulled into the library right before I did. Mm. Ooh. I had no idea that this woman was in such a hurry to get to the library. Right. To to read like the, the new book that had been released. Like she, maybe she's really into the, the latest uh, Stephanie Meyer novel. Jim, was a telling told? Was there a telling? Uh, I don't know what that means. <laughs> did she get told? You did. did you get told? I, 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 did anyone get told? Was there a telling? Nobody got told. Oh my God. Really? <laughs> what an opportunity. What, what are the odds to get that moment? I, I, just, I, I, don't, I don't see that as an opportunity for justice. It's not an opportunity for justice. It's an opportunity, well, for restorative justice. You have a conversation. Be like, hey. <laughs> I want reparations. I noticed that, that, that life-threatening turn you made back yeah. at that light. That scared me. And then she'd be like, well, the truth is I was paying no attention. And then you'd be like, that's not an excuse. <laughs> and then she'd start talking. You'd be like, no, I'm going to stop you there. And then a telling. <laughs> then you get it. Then a telling happens. Okay. Look, her name is Arthur. <laughs> yeah. But- <laughs> she, 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 she needed to get into the library so she could eat her cheese at Calzone uh, before it congealed. <laughs> she had just been on the, on the cat tree. Yeah. And- <laughs> All right. Are you guys ready to call it? I think so. That made about as much sense as a game of AI dungeon. <laughs> I, I, that's accurate. Uh, Cole, if this is something that you want out of your life, how can people find you on the internet? Um, I am on Twitter at Cole Ross. It's spelled weird. K-O-L-E-R-O-S-S. You can also see all the podcasts that I do at um, duckfeed.tv. It's all listener supported. So check it out. It's good stuff. Uh, Tim, uh, if this is something that you want, how can people find you on the internet? They can look up West Quote. That is my handle that I have used for a lot of things. And uh, they can look up Jamestown uh, because I am pretty much, that is just me, uh, channeled into a video game. So Yeah. All right. Thanks so much for being on. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was a great time. Thanks a lot. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can discuss the episodes at the Topic Lords subreddit at r slash Topic Lords. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can find me on the Fediverse as 
mogwai underscore poet at mastodon.social. Also, I'm on Twitter. And you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early and get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.